0: ahead and get started. Um, So welcome everybody to the Orthopedic Trauma Journal Club uh, for Calcaneus Fracture. Um, uh, I am uh, joined by uh, moderators Dr. Thomas Reback from uh, St. Louis University, Dr. John Hagedorn from UT Galveston, and uh, my name is Arne Naja from University of Kentucky. We've got a pretty amazing lineup of faculty tonight. Uh, Dr. Roy Sanders from Tampa, Dr. Richard Buckley from Calgary, and Dr. Stephen Bernischka from um, uh, University of Washington. Uh, these are the disclosures, none of them relevant to this talk. Uh, just some general Zoom etiquette all your microphones have been muted and the videos have been turned off. Uh, please use the question answer for questions related to the discussion. Um, some of the questions we'll try and answer live. Uh, others will be answered in the chat box. The uh, moderators will review questions as they appear and present them to the faculty. So I think uh, the way we've set this up, uh, you know, we're going to have the first video uh, on uh, Dr. Sanders' uh, classification um, paper, Uh, that's gonna be roughly about 20 minutes, uh, followed by Dr. Bernischka's on the anterior process of the calcaneus, followed by Dr. Buckley's uh, two articles uh, on subtalar fusions and outcomes. Uh, Finally, we'll conclude those videos with some questions and discussion. Um, I know that Dr. Uh, Sanders uh, is currently attending the OTA annual business meeting, which is happening at the same time, uh, but we have uh, Dr. Buckley joining us, and I believe Dr. Bernishka is uh, joining us as soon as he's uh, finished with a case. Finally, we'll uh, uh, end up and wrap up around 920, 925, and uh, there'll be five polls of uh, questions to answer. The learning objectives for tonight's webinar uh, is to understand the prognostic utility of the Sanders classification, articulate the importance of the anterior process of the calcaneus in open reduction, internal fixation of calcaneus fractures, and then recognize patient and fracture characteristics that predict need for late subtalar fusion. So with that, we're going to discuss our first article, which is a a highlight paper in uh, General Orthopedic Trauma in 2014 uh, regarding operative treatment of displaced intraarticular calcaneal fractures, long-term 10 to 20-year results in 108 fractures using a prognostic CT classification. Uh, uh, Please feel free to enter your questions and we'll try and answer as many as we can.
1: To go ahead and start. Thank you for joining us uh, today Dr. Sanders to talk to us about
0: your highlight paper, uh, Operative Treatment of Displaced Intraarticular Calcaneal Fractures. Long-term 10 to 20-year results in 108 fractures using a prognostic CT classification. So uh, okay. if, I, if I may begin, what prompted you to do this study?
1: Uh, so uh, since uh, 1986 really when I started my fellowship way back in Vanderbilt with uh, Dr. Swinkowski. I've always been uh, interested in calcaneal fractures. Uh, When I came to Tampa, uh, Dr. Helford had recruited me and uh, Dr. Mass had just left and Dr. Helford was doing pelvis and acetabulum. And I was uh, focusing more on lower extremity. And so uh, back then all the level one trauma centers uh, were getting uh, referrals from everywhere. And so I was doing about 70 calcaneal fractures a year So given that, uh, I started to uh, evaluate them. And uh, we came up with this classification system a long time ago, and uh, we popularized a lot of different things. Uh, And now uh, with a mature practice, I wanted to follow up and see how those patients actually did. I wanted to see whether the classification was still valid. I wanted to see if the classification was able to be prognostic and tell both surgeons and uh, the patients what they could expect with their injury. And that's why we did it.
0: Uh, can you walk us through your algorithm of what you do for Sanders one, two, three, and four?
1: Sure, so the uh, algorithm was pretty straightforward. Uh, we realized uh, that a, a type one is a non-displaced fracture uh, in this classification. And so that really just needs non-operative treatment, early mobilization. uh, And once it's healed at about, depending on uh, how much uh, displacement there was at probably eight to 10 weeks, they can probably start walking uh, without a problem uh, in a uh, boot uh, and then progress. Uh, Type two uh, is a simple fracture uh, that uh, should give you an excellent result. And that's an operative case. Uh, Type 3 is a little more complicated and these fractures, if you have a skill set operatively, you can generally uh, return them to almost pre-injury function. So type 2 and type 3 you can operate on uh, surgically with a good result. And we can talk about what sort of an operation you can do. And then the type 4 is a really type 4 and maybe more, right? So those are highly comminuted fractures that really uh, get uh, destroyed. And uh, in those, uh, we uh, really followed Dr. Pennell, George Pennell from uh, Toronto, his uh, uh, ideas from the uh, 70s, which is to fix it anatomically and then go ahead and uh, fuse the subtalar joint. Uh, So they uh, really at three months, they're completely healed and they can go back at least some function without being uh, disabled and debilitated for months and months and months, and that's our algorithm. Uh, follow up to that: questions
0: along the same line with the subtypes for Sanders three. Uh, when when are you considering fusing it all for Sanders three? Or, or are you always fixing them?
1: So I think that uh, with a with a type three fracture, uh, the real question is whether you can do it through a sinus tarsi. Uh, and honestly, I'm not that good uh, in doing that. Uh, I'm obviously more facile with the extensile, but a lot of these patients uh, come into my office anyway late. So I think that if you uh, uh, are comfortable with the extensile uh, and uh, sorry, comfortable with the sinus tarsi and you can get these people right away, uh, you can try to get them uh, uh, and do an operative repair through the sinus tarsi immediately. But I will tell you that um, we got CAT scans uh, and we're, I, it's either just been published or it's being published, uh, where we looked at our type twos and our type threes uh, with a sinus tarsi. And uh, the problem is that if you get a plain X-ray, uh, it can cheat a little bit for you on the Broden's views uh, and you can't quite see the joint reduction uh, if you're not doing it completely uh, through an extensile approach. So some of these look all right on a plain film, and when you get the CAT scan, you can see that a type 3 with a sinus tarsi approach is not perfect. But I know, and I know that Steve uh, Banershka would agree with me, uh, that if you do an extensile approach, you can get these anatomic, uh, if you uh, have the skill set and are interested in, in learning that uh, type of uh a surgical procedure. So I never fuse uh, 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 a type 3 uh, unless there's no cartilage left. So sometimes you can put these pieces back together. It looks great on CAT scan. You're ready to do it. You open them up, and all the cartilage has been completely sheared off the subchondral bone. There's no point to that because these people are going to get rapid uh, arthritis. Uh, and so in those cases, I'll go ahead again. It's very important to understand that you have to fix them anatomically so that you have the shape, the length, the height, the alignment, and at that point, you can then go ahead uh, and uh, denude the rest of the cartilage and then fuse them. You can't just go ahead and fuse them because they'll be misshapen, and that's not appropriate for for a a primary fusion.
0: Great. Uh, You know, you told us about your algorithm, but can you also tell us, as to how you counsel these patients based on their classification, their Sanders classification?
1: Well, uh, it's pretty much uh, the same thing. So a type one that's non-displaced, uh, if they adhere to your uh, uh, treatment method, which is not always the case, uh, they should expect a perfect result. Uh, with a with a type two and type three, and, and more with a type two, obviously, uh, if you're able to get an anatomic reduction and you can verify that on CAT scan, Uh, I tell them they should have uh, really an excellent result initially uh, and for quite some time though I never know how much impact they had at the time of uh, the uh, injury and so they can uh, get cartilage wear down the line. So I tell them at that point maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years which is what I looked at uh, in this study uh, they may develop subtalar arthritis and if that's very significant for them then they would get a simple in situ fusion uh, and they would notice, and this is, you know, progression from two to three, uh, they would notice uh, stiffness in the subtalar joint, difficulty with uneven ground, cutting, running. They'd start to have problems there uh, in the subtalar joint. And with the type threes, I tell them it'll probably happen sooner than later, uh, but at least they're shaped and they have more function uh, than if I were to go ahead and, and do a primary fusion. And the type fours, I tell them they, uh, they get a primary fusion, they should be able to go do pretty much everything, uh, but uh, they probably can't run and jump, uh, and they're probably gonna permanently have problem with uneven ground. It's important, I would say, that when you finally do the fusion, that you don't overcorrect them into varus, uh, because people hate varus, uh, and uh, a little bit of valgus seems to be neutral for most people. So if you're going to cheat, cheat a little bit of valgus, don't try to overcorrect them because they'll fall off their foot when they try to walk sideways. You know, move sideways. They'll, they'll fall cuz they don't have that eversion and you have to build that into the fusion.
0: Right. You know, although you excluded from this study, can you tell us your preferred treatment modality for open calc fractures and extra articular tongue type fractures? I know I'm kind of- So
1: there, there've been many papers on that and we uh, had a paper on that as well. My, my uh, I, I don't think I do anything differently. Uh, basically, if you have uh, an open uh, medial wound, it's not so bad. It's usually where the um, sustentaculum or body fragment, uh, uh, you know, pokes through uh obviously if it's a degloving injury that's a whole different story that's like a you know transcalcaneal tail disc- dislocation that's a whole different story but right? if you have a a poke hole on the medial side you should be fine uh it's the same thing with blisters if you have blisters um i if they're uh, um white blisters it's not a problem if they're red blisters Again, you have to be more careful. Again, if they're on the medial side, it's probably safer. Uh, If it's on the lateral side uh, and it's open, if it's a gash, like a laceration, it's probably okay. Uh, If it's a degloving injury, uh, all bets are off because that's a soft tissue explosion and the bone is the least of your problem. And I think that, uh, again, Dr. Purnurska wrote a paper, the folks in Seattle wrote a paper where they, um, just and this is what we do as well. You can shape that calcaneus with uh, K wires, K wire jail. Uh, get the talonavicular joint, uh, pin it to the uh, talus as well, uh, and uh, reshape it. And then just wait, let it heal, let it scar down in an anatomic position. Pull the pins, let them walk on it. They it'll harden. Uh, and then when they uh, uh, have arthritis, they can get a subtalar, a talonavicular and a subtalar fusion. Uh, electively, and then you have something to work with. So most of the um, open injuries are are type one or, or, or type two, occasionally a type three A somewhere, not around your incision, and you can go ahead and do that, but I wouldn't do it for a three B degloving type injury.
0: And then for the extraarticular tongue type
1: fractures, did you? Uh, yeah, so they're actually uh, really um, hard fractures. Uh, so there, there are extraarticular tongues and intra tongues, right? And the intra-articular tongue uh, we uh, struggle with a lot. Sometimes you have to do a strayer procedure on them, uh, but you can't always get it up. Like you can get it up, but it'll translate on you because of the Achilles. And uh, when you're doing an intraarticular like that, uh, if it's not fresh and you're having difficulty, uh, then what I typically do is I'll do an osteotomy and I turn a a tongue into a joint depression and then I I line it back up and with the osteotomy being oblique it'll kick back into place and then the plate goes on so that's pretty straightforward. When it's extra-articular that can be really problematic because uh, we we wrote a paper uh, several uh, I think a year or two ago Uh, where they don't do so well, they pull apart. You put two cannulated cancellous screws down into the plantar surface, it'll rip right off. But you definitely have to do a strayer. Uh, You probably have to put these people in a little bit of Aquinas and then walk them up over time. Uh, But the fixation falls apart. If you use, um, uh, what do you call them, tight ropes? I've used two tight ropes, they've fallen apart. The thing that works the best for me is this technique from Hardy Weber's uh, book uh, from 1983 on special techniques, where he actually uses a tension band? He runs a tension band from a lateral side, he runs it around the tuber, and then he makes a small incision medially, and he passes it back under, and then he ties both sides down, and he and and it's a tension band. And the picture he has is a is a crocodile's mouth, and you can't you can't open it, and that's really. Uh, the technique, uh, honestly, that's worked best for me because they can't move it. Uh, and for an extra articular, that's pretty much what I'll do, even though that's, I don't know, 50 years old now, <laughs> close to 50 years old, it still works.
0: Great, There's thank nothing
1: you. Were... And <laughs> orthopedic. Uh,
0: you noted about 100% of patients with Sanders 2 and 3 uh, demonstrated radiographic evidence of post-traumatic arthritis, but yet only one one third underwent fusion, predominantly the Sanders three. Have you noticed in your practice, any patient specific variables that lead to better clinical outcomes such as uh, it's really education?
1: So uh, my, my uh, o- over the years, my partners have kind of pushed me away from uh, acute uh, care and I end up doing a lot of reconstructive work. So I see a lot of patients uh, that have arthritis in the foot and ankle uh, and uh, we don't treat x-rays, you shouldn't treat x-rays. You can, obviously if a patient has a problem clinically and it matches the x-ray or the x-ray matches a clinical problem, then you have a cause and effect. But there are a lot of people uh, that you look at their x-ray and it's just horrific. And you say to them, well, you know, how's your ankle? And they say, fine, I came into you because I got a hammer toe or I came in because I got a midfoot pain, you know, and a posterior tibial tendonitis, a true, true unrelated. So uh, when I look at these X-rays in this study, after 10 to 20 years, all these people had a varying degree of subtalar arthritis. And remember, we got CAT scans on everybody. So um, they may not have had the X, uh, the the, the arthritis on the X-ray, but when you look at the CAT scan, you can see changes, right? but clinically uh, the simpler fractures didn't really have any of the problems. And I suspect, I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? They have more cartilage, less cartilage was damaged. They only had a two part fracture. It takes a lot of energy uh, to create a three part fracture. And so uh, that extra energy probably uh, obviously destroyed the, uh, the cartilage of the subtalar joint. And so these people, Probably have more rapid arthritis. It's clinically uh, prevalent uh, than not, and so that's that's why uh, I'm being honest, uh, right? Everybody's got at 20 years, all these people can have arthritis, but uh, it's a varying degree of of arthritis, and the people that seem to have the clinical correlation are the ones with a higher grade injury, and that really just again uh, this classification. Uh, has now stood the test of time. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I have to say when we did the original classification we were just trying to help each other figure out how to operate on these and what worked and what didn't. Uh, for me to be able to go back at 20 years and see the outcomes and see that this classification still has merit and still uh, is prognostic was really a little mind-blowing for me. Um, I was very humbled by that because <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, just pretty amazing that it, that it works so well for all of this. It, It really does. It's quite amazing to me.
0: Yeah. Um, you briefly mentioned on this, but, uh, let me just ask one more time. Does, you know, I really enjoyed your debate with Dr. Tornetta a couple of years ago at the OTA, um, but what role does the sinus Tarsi approach have in your practice? Do you use that at all or? Sure, a so lot of- uh,
1: they gave me uh, the extensile, uh, but uh, I try to stay current, obviously, and uh, we try, you know, uh, if the if it's the right patient and the right fracture, we'll do acute pilons, we'll do acute, uh, you know, uh, talus, obviously, we'll do acute calcaneal fractures, uh, if they're simple. And the paper that we uh, uh, published uh, recently or it's coming out uh, in J.O.T. is that um, with, a, with a two-part fracture uh, if you can get to it I don't know within three to five days with a sinus tarsi you can pop it you can see it you can manipulate it and you can get a very nice result very early and allow early motion on these people. The problem uh, with doing an extensile uh, is that you have to wait till the swelling is down. And and even then, you still have some soft tissue problems in the uh, corner with apical wound necrosis. And obviously, people don't like that. The other problem is, by the time you do it, uh, and you're at two or three weeks, the fracture can be very stiff, can be starting to heal, uh, and uh, you can't always get the length out of it. Uh, And so, uh, these people, because you're doing an extensile, the subtalar joint tends to be a little stiffer than if you do a fresh fracture through the sinus tarsi. Now, saying that, uh, there are two caveats. The first is that um, it's, it requires a learning curve to learn the sinus tarsi. And the sinus tarsi will work for simple three parts, but not for every one of them. And if you wait too long, you'll never get a good result. And if you don't get a CAT scan, you're just lying to yourself, that's number one. And number two, if all you know how to do is a sinus tarsi or one trick pony, and you're gonna fall into problems because if you get these things late, you have to know how to do an extensile approach. And if you don't, and you do a sinus tarsi, you're not doing the patient a service. So what I would say is that if you're gonna, as an orthopedic surgeon who is interested in trauma or foot and ankle, if you're gonna do a sinus tarsi, you better know how to do an extensile, right? It's just like if, if you're a sports guy, you know, and you're doing a shoulder, you better know how to do an open shoulder as well as, a, as, as an arthroscopic shoulder. You need to know everything and have everything in your armamentarium so you pick the right operation for the right fracture pattern. And I would tell you that for a type two, easy, early sinus tarsi is fine. But for a comminuted fracture uh, or late, or you want to do a, a primary fusion, you really need to know how to do the extensile lateral and, and keep yourself out of trouble. So with both of those, uh, that that will really help you uh, be a consummate uh, calcaneal fracture surgery.
0: Great, thank you for sharing that wisdom. Final question, um, so kind of to wrap this up, what questions do you think still remain unanswered in the topic of uh, operative treatment of calcaneous fractures?
1: Uh, well, I think that if we could uh, get a better uh, a way uh, to get the, um, the sinus-tarsi approach to give you a more uh, uh, visualization, uh, so maybe a longer, maybe an old coker, you know, the way we used to do this originally, so just uh, for one minute, right, we used to do this with a coker approach along the perineals. And you could see the whole joint, but you had to move the perineals up and down and sometimes you dislocated them and didn't quite understand what we were doing. And Diego Fernandez used to do a limited uh, coker approach, but he would put the patient prone so he could go medial. And so he was able to reconstruct the body with a medial plate and a medial reduction and the joint through the lateral approach. And so I think we're gonna, once everybody's comfortable, uh, with, with a sinus tarsi, again, it's another learning curve. And people are gonna say, well, I can get the joint, I can't get the body, how do I get the body? I can go and go get the enter process, but I can't, I can't quite get the body where I want it to. Uh, and so people might then start doing, you know, just like you do for tibial plateau, just like you do with a, a pelvis, right? We're, we're constantly uh, uh, pushing the envelope and coming up with a perfect solution to all the aspects of the fracture. And I think that's what you're gonna see, you know, dual approaches for calcaneus and you probably will be able, cause I know I've done it several times, you're able to get it perfect. I mean, really it's, it's quite amazing. So I think that's ultimately where we're gonna go. And if you can do that, then you don't really have to worry about the soft tissue envelope, which is the real key to this whole operation.
0: Great. Thank you for taking time and sharing your wisdom with us, Dr. Sanders.
1: Oh, happy to do it. Uh, I thank you very much. I enjoyed myself. All right. Uh,
0: with that, we're going to go ahead and go to our second uh, article, uh, which is the prognostic value of uh, computer tomography classification system for intraarticular calcaneus fractures by Dr. Bernishko and all at all.
2: The uh, the there was a you know the classic descriptions of calcaneus fractures were usually lumped into two uh, basic groups: tongue variants and joint depression injuries. And uh, there were classification schemes that were just based on that, really not on the fracture line. But then uh, there was an attempt, thinking that the if you classify the number and the location of the fracture lines of the posterior set that had some prognostic uh, outcome, and turns out that doesn't because Mm. it turns out really what's more important is um, the fracture line location is directly attributable to how difficult the fracture is to reduce, not necessarily that it's going to do badly. In other words, Mm -hmm. a very medial fracture line of the posterior facet uh, is more difficult to see well, and then a segmental injury to the posterior facet it obviously matters on how well each section is reduced and mm-hmm. what became clear when we were looking at any of the classification schemes before nobody really talked about um, they just talked about the joint they didn't talk about the rest of the morphology of the heel mm-hmm. and uh, essentially what we realized is that once you take into consideration all the fracture fragments especially the antropocytes you realize that that's actually the the crux of the reduction is reducing the front, which is really distal to the critical angle of gassania In other words, just distal to the butcher butchipuset, mm-hmm. because that always gets driven up into the sinus tarsi, lateral mm-hmm. to the tail or head and neck. Unless you bring that anterolateral fragment or the anterior process down, you know, depending on how common it is that is really the lighthouse to the subtalar joint, because mm-hmm. if it doesn't get brought down, essentially inferiorly or planarly and back to where it should go, then the talus cannot articulate with the posterior of set properly, because literally, essentially what you are accomplishing is what I was talking to you about today, is mm-hmm. the, the subtalar joint get, gets seized. In other words, you cannot pronate the foot because the, Front of the tailus has mm-hmm. no place to go because the process is literally blocking its ability to to move mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the uh, coronal plane. Based on you know what where there and we basically were trying to illustrate that um, you know where the fracture line does uh, occur doesn't really matter. It's a matter of um, uh, the most common problem is the anterior process or the most mm-hmm. difficult reconstruction the anterior process and so uh the articular reduction is part of the problem but the main main dilemma is is the whole shape being restored in mm-hmm. other words you know the, mm-hmm. the length of the front and then the tuberosity is kind of the last stage you know you fix the front then you mm-hmm. fix the middle which is the joint and then you fix the tuberosity at the end whereas classically everybody started from the middle and. Um, mm-hmm the problem is the anterior process is the key to the whole uh, fracture, which Mm -hmm. most people don't even talk. Nobody talks about the anterior process, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, because the Sanders classification really only talks about the posterior set, it doesn't talk about the relationship of how that fits with the rest of the, the morphology Mm -hmm. of the heel, meaning the tuberosity or the uh, anterior process. And so, you know, when you see a uh, the, fr- the the uh, fracture classification, it doesn't distinguish between joint depression and tongue variants. The classification that we were using, I was using was uh, Richard Hill's classification, because he wrote a paper about uh, the number of fragments in the anterior process. I mean I can mm-hmm. I can send that to you, but it's I, we call it a literal one, two, three or four because mm-hmm. it was the one that actually was um, the only one that ever actually even talked about the anterior process mm-hmm. in the 80s. Once you get the anterior process down, the cuboid follows that and so essentially that indirectly has a direct bearing on the outcome of the fracture of the calcaneus because that also is pivotal with respect to Chopart's joint. In other words, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Simon line between the Taylor mm-hmm. and the joint and the cuboid joint. If you okay. bring the anterior process down where it should go, the lateral column of the foot is reestablished. And if you don't bring the anterior down, almost by definition, what ends up happening is the cuboid follows that um, mountain alignment and mm-hmm. the foot essentially is starting to go flat. In other words, the lateral column is short by virtue of mm-hmm. the uh, anterior process being um, truncated, shortened. Okay. And so mm-hmm. once you restore the length, which in- involves the fraction lines of the anterior process, and the more com- line. In other words, mm-hmm. when you get shortening and then you overcome shortening, there will be many times cortical reads on the superior part of the anterior that actually you know it's properly realigned and you get an AP of the foot or you, you can see the the best yeah. way to understand it is you, um, if you look at a preop lateral of somebody that has an un, unfixed fracture, you can never see the middle facet because middle facet mm-hmm. is a medial structure and the lateral part of the anterior is above it. And so mm-hmm. it obliterates your ability to see the middle facet when you bring the anterior process to length and inferior, you know, you essentially mm-hmm. bring it out to length and inferior, then all of a sudden you look, you can look through the sinus tarsi and see the middle facet, which really essentially tells you that you are getting the lateral column down where it should be. I don't know, 20 years, we didn't really have good implants to manage a very common accommodated mm-hmm. anterior process. So, we would reassemble the fracture fragments, and then because the anterior process was uh, comminuted and we didn't have locked plates to hold the front down well, mm-hmm. we would put a, a con- the plate that we fixed the heel with was extended out onto the cuboid. So in other words, mm-hmm. you would anchor that you'd be holding the anterior process down by virtue mm-hmm. of being anchored properly to the cuboid, so that you restore that cuboid architecture, but unfortunately spanning the joint, mm-hmm. and yeah. you'd have one or two screws in the cuboid, and then you six months later, uh, to free up their okay. cuboid joint. You cut the plate off or take a screw out. And uh, uh-huh. then as soon as um, and a lot of people say, well, the enterprise is too common and you can't fix it. Well, mm-hmm. th- this allowed us to get it realigned, but the problem is it uh, does bind up the cuboid joint. With the advent of locked platings, especially the newer lock plates, not necessarily the mm-hmm. older ones. The older ones were pretty rudimentary, but. The mm-hmm. whole point was that you would be able to contain the enter process position without mm-hmm. having to go to the cuboid.
0: Great. Uh, we'll finally discuss our last two articles uh, by Dr. Buckley: um, displaced interarticular calcaneal fractures, variables predicting late subtalar fusion, as well as a OTA highlight article um, discussing open reduction internal fixation compared with open reduction internal fixation in primary subtalar arthrodesis for Sanders type 4 calcaneal fractures, a randomized multi-center trial. Uh, please feel free to keep putting in your questions, and uh, we'll try and answer as many of them live with uh, Dr. Buckley and Dr. Bernishka at the end. Dr.
3: Buckley, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to talk about two papers today. Um, One, as you can see up here is from uh, 2003. Uh, Dr. Buckley, would you just kind of describe where this idea came from and uh, how this idea was uh, spurred on? Well, this paper uh,
4: was generated in 2003 from data that we had uh, created through the 1990s. And so in uh, 1991, our Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society was begun. Myself and Ross Layton, uh, Bob McCormick and uh, Bob Meek and Dave Petrie. And really, we put this together uh, with a randomized controlled trial of operative versus non-operative care of uh, calcaneal fractures. And uh, that trial ran through all of the 1990s. And by the time everybody had two-year follow-up, We sort of made the year 2000, presented it through around 2000-2001 and basically determined that we had really scant differences between operative and non-operative care in a huge group of calcaneal fracture patients that will never be done again, that study, because we just can't treat them non-operatively. This particular paper then uh, was an offshoot because we looked at all the variables that would predict late subtalar fusion in this uh, huge group uh, I think it's about 470 calcaneal fractures and so this paper then really helped us move in on what were the patient characteristics that determined someone would have a bad outcome whether treated operatively or non-operatively such that they'd need a late subtalar fusion but back in the 1990s we didn't have good evidence that operative care was the way to go with calcaneal fractures. so once we determined that operative care was probably marginally better, in, especially in some populations, we could proceed with this particular um, uh, kind of review of our huge database. And w- what we found was there were certain patient characteristics, um, males who did heavy labor job jobs. And so that was uh, two crucial things because when they uh, had a bad heel fracture, Uh, especially the higher grade Sanders threes and fours, they had a much higher subtalar fusion rate. The people who had an initial bowler's angle, which was much less, so 15 degrees, pretty good. It's not badly displaced. Those people had a very unusual late subtalar fusion rate. And then uh, there was a few other things, workers' compensation board patients, they just tended to have less and less ability to handle Um, calcaneal fractures and heavy labor after, and we're much happier with subtator fusions. And then lastly, one of the most important things we found is that look, when you had a subtator fusion, everybody sort of caught up to the best results that uh, you could give them if they were treated non-operatively or operatively and were not doing well, when you fuse their um, subtator joint, they kind of caught up and were really doing not badly.
3: So you report roughly a 10% fusion rate you know, if you're treated non-operatively about 20% and then if you're treated operatively about, you know, less than 5% in your practice, who uh, gets treated non-operatively and what percentage?
4: Yeah, thanks, Thomas. That's a really good question. And I've had to justify this for my whole career now, having been involved as the major author in this big randomized controlled trial. Non-operative care has a place and that place is in people who are just poor surgical candidates, and especially older poor surgical candidates, and especially non-compliant older uh, bad surgical candidates. So when you add up all those features, it's the bad medical patient, the older patient. That patient who doesn't have a a bad subtalar joint, their bowler's angle is 15 degrees or higher on initial presentation. The really um, non-repentant smoker, these people, when you've added together, just don't uh, do well with surgery. Now on the other side is if you have bad foot shape, those people must have surgery. And I put foot shape ahead of bad joint congruity because really we found that, and that was something that didn't come out in this paper, but has sort of come out since. Anybody who's got a malformed foot will do poorly. And then that makes for a very difficult late fusion. And so your question, Thomas, is important, is that those people who have good foot shape can also be treated non-operatively. We can predict who will do poorly with non-operative care based on our criteria. So if you've got a Sanders four, right away you know that you probably have poor foot shape. You already have a joint that has been very badly um influenced and its future has been determined to have early arthritis and so putting those together I would say that that person mandates having surgery whether you proceed with an operative reduction if that's something that you do and if you don't send them to somebody who does do operative calcaneal reductions or a primary fusion, because Our uh, second paper really shows that a primary fusion prevents the two operations, having to do one operative reduction and then a later fusion versus just doing a primary fusion, which patients will do well. And a good thing about a primary fusion heals up more quickly and they can start weight bearing more quickly. That's something that I think most calc fractures when you do them, they need an extended period, at least eight to 10 weeks well, most fusions after six weeks, you've got a solid fusion and you can start walking. So I think that's an advantage.
3: Okay. So it kind of dovetails into our second paper uh, regarding primary fusion. If you could just briefly describe where this idea came from.
4: So this paper was generated after we had done our randomized controlled trial and after we'd done our uh, paper that we presented first there. And we had learned by this time with our Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society that our calcaneal fracture patients, the worst, the type fours had a high fusion rate. Yet no one had done that paper, operative versus um, uh, primary fusion for calcaneal fractures as a study. And we thought we'd be able to generate enough within our group. Uh, As it turned out, a randomized trial was very tough even though we had four real good centers operating uh, in this uh, group. So that was the impetus because we knew that we didn't have an answer yet, uh, we'd had enough cases under our belt at this point, and all of us were real calcaneal uh, fracture surgeons. We we knew we had the expertise in the group that we could do this study. Uh, so we proceeded down the down the line, and there'd been such such you know uh, a paucity of literature before about the Sanders force. So we said, well, let's do it.
3: Can you just comment on how doing this paper led to additional um, you know evidence based articles regarding the management of Sanders four fractures. Yeah, thanks,
4: Thomas. I I think it actually is a pretty significant paper because with, um, with quality surgical care, with those of us that are involved in the study and with a real tight group, and these are the Sanders four, these weren't the simple calcaneal fractures, So we really had tailored it to the worst of the worst. And then when they're randomized to a fusion or to operative care, generally these patients did quite well but we found that the results were equal and in certainly my mind um, there is a group of sanders four patients that will then go on to late fusion we didn't have that many in this study because we didn't have a lot of patients overall but we know that the sanders four occasionally will go on to second surgery meeting a fusion why not do that primary fusion and certainly if you're dealing with a tough patient and by tough patient, I mean, maybe somebody who, not necessarily compliant, somebody who's potentially a smoker, workers' compensation, they have a high rate of needing fusion later. Why not just do one simple operation and help both you and your patient to get through this terrible, nasty. insult? So now, now, importantly here, Thomas, a lot of people, they skipped this part of the, the uh, study. If we did an open reduction, that was through an extended lateral full operative intervention. If we did the fusion, we still did the full operative intervention, but then took the joint away and fused it. And so these aren't um, sort of, I'll use the term half-assed surgeries. These were full open reductions followed by fusion. And I think that's necessary because we still are trying to get good foot shape. And I'll put in a plug now for operative reduction. I think by doing extended laterals, we really can create really good uh, anatomic feet with height, length, width all restored. I'm, I'm not a uh, aficionado of the um, sinus tarsi approaches for doing difficult fractures because I don't think we get height, length, width correct as easily unless you're a really, really slick surgeon. And so this is where I believe uh, in some instances we have to do a full operative intervention to get these bad feet, the type fours, get them correct. You know, these people do well. What we've learned with this particular study and even our initial uh, randomized controlled trial was that a late fusion is not a bad outcome. A a fused patient uh, does really quite well. We know that the best patient will have subtator motion if they've not been fused. And that is a real um, harbinger of their late outcome. Now there's a more motion you can restore and that's why the percutaneous reductions uh, are slightly better now than the full open because they have more subtalar motion if you've done a nice reconstruction. So more surgery means more stiffness. But if you've done a good fusion, you've taken their pain away so they can live with a little stiffness and it'll be accommodated through the rest of the hind foot uh, midfoot and ankle and so a fusion is not a bad operation it just has to be done well
3: mm-hmm. and so we'll close the the last one of the last uh sentences in this paper says the best treatment uh option is to fit the patient not the fracture and and what would you what what are your comments on that and that statement
4: yeah thanks thomas for closing on this because this has been something that i've really believed in for my whole career and uh, coming from Canada, this has been a uh, something that I think we've helped spread the word about evidence-based medicine is that higher evidence uh, leads to better decisions. And so the three things that make up evidence-based uh, treatment, number one, what the patient wants, what the patient deserves because it's their foot and what their feeling is. Because some people say, oh yeah, fuse me, doc, and get this over with, but it's the patient thoughts. Two is what the surgeon can do. What are you capable of doing and doing well to the best of your ability? And thirdly, what the evidence in the literature shows. What's the latest and best evidence? And certainly that's where we have to put the level one evidence and the um, uh, multicenter trials and those um, uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses to the top. And we have to follow this because we're not, um, none of us are better than anybody else, but as a group, we're gonna move forward with higher level
3: evidence. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Buckley for joining us um, and and thank you for providing your insights from all your years of experience. Well, thanks,
4: Thomas. Honored to be here and Dr. Buckley.
0: all right. So with that, I'm going to stop sharing. I'll ask uh, Dr. Buckley and Dr. Bernishka, as well as Dr. Reback, uh, Dr. Hagedorn to uh, turn on their videos and we can quickly do some question and answers from the audience.
4: So the first question that came up is, uh, what are the indications for percutaneous fixation of calcaneuses? That's the first
2: one to pop up. Dr. Bernersker, Dr. Uh, can Buckley. Can you hear me, John? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question because I think a lot of people would like to um, do things more percutaneously, recognizing even what Rick just alluded to in the uh, in the, his discussion about Sanders force. The, the big issue is um, percutaneous reductions really only can be used to mis- facilitate reducing a tongue during injury uh, more anatomically. The problem is you can unlock its de-ro- and derotate its position, but it's very hard to maintain it with, for example, percutaneous screws because the forces are such that uh, it's very easy for that to redisplace in its depressed position because as I was talking earlier about the anterior process, a really high energy tongue variants usually go along with a very common anterior process. So to reduce the fracture is one thing, to maintain its reduction is the second, And so we noticed this long ago before locked implants that if we didn't have a better way of controlling the tuberosity, we would get uh, essentially insidious progressive failures even after fixing them because the fixation wasn't able to hold on long enough. Uh, We do percutaneous reductions all the time for skin at risk, calcanea. These are almost all tongue variants, so posterior skin at risk. Uh, And those in our hands now at our institution, what we're doing, is all the trauma faculty will percutaneously realign displaced skin at risk fractures, uh, hold them in that position. And then we definitively go back and fix them usually with an extensile approach sometime later, 10 days to two weeks later. The one indication for true percutaneous reduction is the extra-articular tongue, which um, you can reduce acutely uh, with just clamps and uh, for example, screws. Uh, In our hands, we have a very hard time accomplishing that without releasing the gastric at the same sitting, but the point is that to obtain a reduction, you can do that with a percutaneous clamp or reduction tools such like uh, a vapor clamp to control the the displacement, but intraarticular articular reductions is very difficult to do percutaneously.
4: So everything that Steve says is right on. I think all three of us are saying so many things the same, but I like to break it up into the patient reasons, the fracture reasons, and the limb reasons. And so percutaneous surgery, I think, really should only be used in, uh, for example, with patients that are just not healthy enough in relation to their skin quality, heavy smokers, uh, patients medically not well, As far as the limb, those areas where you just have really bad skin and you're just looking at foot shape and the joint isn't nearly as important, diabetics. And then lastly, in relation to percutaneous surgery, uh, Roy said that, um, Steve said that with his talk and really me with mine, is that we should only be taking on simple fractures for percutaneous fixation where you have you know, the best chance of getting it right. You're not gonna take a bad three or four and try to do that percutaneously because you're wasting your time. You're just not gonna do it well. The sinus tarsi, if you add that now to the percutaneous where you've got a small cut, you might be able to see the joint and get it right. So I hope those words of wisdom help you remember the patient, the limb and the fracture.
3: What size screws are, are we using with percutaneous fixation? So usually for me, usually for me sorry Steve I'll I'll just finish here yeah usually it would be a cannulated
4: uh, 7.2 or cannulated 6.5 screw and those are screws that you carefully place. With lots of views under fluoro uh, once you've got it and you need screws that both support underneath the joint screws that support longitudinally and screws that will uh, help so that your. um, Overall shape is. Uh, determined. So you need them in multiple different directions in areas where the skin's not compromised.
2: We're using so, uh, smaller screws only because the pitch of the smaller screws can capture more parotid bone. But I think the main thing is whatever you're putting in shouldn't be a prominent structure later. For example, if you're trying to do something percutaneously, the screws should not be a bother to the patient later. Uh, probably the biggest thing that we're finding now is people are, and Rick alluded to this with the Sanders of uh, people are trying to do sinus approaches for even moderately complex fractures and not even getting them close. And then what we have to do later is they all get the same deformation patterns. They get short, they get wide, they're embarrassed, and they're usually very overloaded in their perineal uh, sheath area. So they all get impingement. And then when you want to do a fusion, you have a very difficult time doing that through a sinus approach because you can't really correct the morphology. So that's why it's pretty pivotal in the really complicated fracture. People won't want to stay away from getting involved. But in fact, those are the ones almost you have to get involved if you want to save their foot, because you can't do any good reconstructions later with a horribly malaligned foot. And we had a paper in 2000, I think six, showing how hard it was to correct with fusion, a top fusion and malunited fracture which now we're obviously doing different things, but back then we didn't have the tools to do that we do today. Yeah, and so, Steve,
4: if I just add one thing, Steve is so right with this, is that we've gone through the pendulum. We started off non-operative care, and then, okay, operative, non-operative, now what is better? We learned, okay, we should be operating on them. Well, then we go whole hog with great big extended-type incisions, but now there's soft tissue complications. And so, okay, now we back off and we're back to, well, we can't, get things maybe quite as perfect with an extended lateral but we're helping the soft tissues but just like steve says when we did the extended lateral we could get it right roy said that i get them right steve will get them right but as soon as you move towards having a um, smaller cuts more percutaneous surgery we really risk getting foot shape and the joint right and now we've got malaligned misshapen feet and the joint's not good and so the pendulum swings back and forth it's in between which is why you have to be so careful with these
2: uh, I'll, I'll just say one thing. Rick kind of alluded to this. <laughs> you know, everybody uh, gives us a hard time about doing extended approaches, but what's interesting is that now I'm seeing a whole host of sinus tarsi approaches that come to us infected. Um, they're malaligned. They only can have a fusion. They have a sinus tarsi approach that's draining, and there's no reduction. And so essentially, you have the worst of both worlds because you have no reduction, you have an infection, you need to do a fusion but you really can't do one because the patient's infected. So you're doing another operation, try to get them clean, close and dry before you fuse them. And so we've had to, we're actually going to try to submit a paper. We we call it the sham incision paper where we're making the extensile incision, uh, not elevating the flap, and then waiting six weeks, going back six to eight weeks later, knowing that the flap will survive to go through that, to do an extensile approach to realign the foot because we know we can't do it through a sinus Darcy approach. So it's, it's, it's distressing to see, but it's almost exactly what's happened is people are choosing what they think is an easier path, but they're making it a much more difficult one later because they don't take care of those problems and they send them to people like us and they want us to fix them and it becomes incredibly more difficult and trepidatious for the patient.
3: Dr. Murderska, can you comment on acute external
2: fixation? Uh, for a widely displaced calcaneus fracture? You know, I, yeah, well, I started doing that a long time ago because when I wrote up the series of uh, wound complications, uh, we didn't really have many wound complications with closed fractures, but the open fractures because the medial wound was the one that was always a, a, at risk or had issues with healing. And many times they would take months to heal. I realized if I had real, if I realigned the tuberosity's position in space acutely it made the medial wound accessible to be closed primarily. And uh, instead of just reducing it, then holding it in that position, I put a three pronged frame on basically from the tuberosity, then to the pivot, and to the midfoot, to the, to the cuneiforms. So it was like a triangle on the medial side. And uh, you would realign shape, you close the wound medially, you don't uh, do anything on the lateral side, and indirectly, kind of like what you would for a pl- plafond injury you would reestablish all the morphologic or reconstruction. You need height, length of the tuber, shift of the tuber medially, uh, anterior process length via the anterior process uh, fixation to the cuneiforms. And then you go back uh, one, two, three weeks later and the lateral incision is pristine. Nobody's gone through it. Uh, and I did that for open fractures for a, quite a while. And then I said, well, I had a guy who came in with a markedly displaced close injury, did the exact same thing for his close injury he was really very painful acutely. I remember distinctly, he's a 70-year-old guy. He woke up in the recovery after I put the frame, on. he said, my foot feels so much better. And because I think what we did was we had taken the tension off of his tibial nerve by shifting his tuberosity back medially and posteriorly. So it wasn't on stretch. And he said, this feels fine because he was stable. And then and the other sort of parenthetic thing we found was by doing that, Complex fractures that sometimes take two or three weeks because they're swelling to be able to be fixed definitively would be ready in a week or 10 days, which is like what you see with you fix a plafond by realigning the plafond, fixing the fibula, putting a good frame on. That plafond is ready for definitive treatment much earlier than if you had left it in, in its misshapen position. So that's what we're doing now, and we do it fairly frequently. Um, another question is, uh, there was a question
4: about how to sequence the reduction of the anterior process and then the posterior facet and the tuberosity, and likewise, how you sequence the reduction if you're going to start with the posterior facet and then work on the anterior process and tuberosity. So
2: there are just tips and tricks on that. Who, who, who do you want to talk? I know, uh, it, it, Dr. Buckley or either, if you want to go first, because
4: if you're a joint first guy or well, I'm not a, sure. like
2: I, I mean it, we would teach on the AL courses joint first for a long time, but um, what we realized as fracture became more complicated that um, you would you could not literally fixed the articular surface of the posterior facet to the sustentaculum until you brought the tuber the anterior process out of the shortened position so you could get access to the posterior facet because the fragment would be so depressed in the in the sinus that you could not literally reduce the articular surface. So we started derotating the, the anterior process down and bringing the sustentaculum back and in the proper position, anchoring the anterior process. And essentially when you do this sequence, when you get the anterior process right in terms of out to length, it actually confirms for you that you're doing the right uh, order of uh, realignment because the post-surface set becomes very easy to then reduce. Because you've got a you can look at it position where it fits it to the critical angle. And sort of what you have to do is to that you will then realize the tuberosity is in your way in the back, but you've got the front realigned so that you then manipulate the tuberosity to get it out of the way of facilitating the post-set. And when the post set is keyed, in then it, it corroborates where you need to put the tuberosity. So each sequence sort of correlates with you're going in the right direction to get the morphology back. So that's why I go front, middle, back.
4: Yeah, I think Steve has taught us that and uh, he had been doing these just a few more years than before I started doing them. And you know we had um, learned from Steve. So I I would agree. You still have to start after you've done the front, you still have to work way medial and then towards the back. The problem is, is that a lot of people call that sustentacular piece, the constant piece. <laughs> And that that's not a constant piece. (laughs) Okay. And, and Steve will know this too, is that that medial side piece is not constant. And so a lot of people just build everything to that and think they've got it right. Well, that's not true. So if you don't get the front, right, then you can't get that sustentaculum in the right spot. And then you can't build your posterior facet to it, followed by your uh, posterior tuber. So You really have to work in sequence, in an order, and that's why it's so tough to do things through a sinus tarsi. So I agree with uh, Steve in relation to that. We um, have taught this uh, course in Davos in Switzerland for a number of years, and it's four hours on one calcaneus. And what we prove is with the CT and all the different pieces and all the different pieces are color coded that you can see that medial sustentacular piece is also badly displaced and not in good position. And without working on the rest of the uh, front and medial structures, you can't get that uh, posterior facet right.
0: Dr. Buckley, um, at the Davos meeting, I heard uh, something pretty interesting that you'd mentioned. Uh, Can you kind of mention again, like, for the calcaneus fractures that you're treating, how many? What percentage are full extensile? How many are sinus tarsi? How many are non-op? And you know what sort of time frame you are. And same for Dr. Bernishko.
4: Yeah, so in my practice now it's evolved as everybody does, but I'm about ten percent non-operative. So the older, medically unfit patients with not bad-looking foot shape or joint. And then about 10% are on the other extreme. They're so bad that I proceed with the fusion, or they have patient characteristics, jumpers, um, people who have uh, bad medical uh, history. And then you've got that tough group. Okay, am I going to do a uh, percutaneous sinus tarsi small incision surgery or a full meal deal? And I'm now down to just about 20% through a full extensile approach and about. You know, the rest it's closing in on about 60% with small cut surgery, but I have to say your best chance of getting a perfect heel bone and in the young patient I have no issues with approaching a full extended approach to get that foot perfect. By doing a full extended now we operate quite a bit earlier than others we've done so many in my institution that with the uh, as uh, Roy had said it's about one a week we were doing at the height of our study. you know when you're ready to get at that foot. So we're not waiting until they're sticky out at three weeks. I like to do them before two weeks. So usually at about the 10 day point. And most feet are ready for surgery, especially those that aren't badly traumatized. So that's sort of my plan. About 60% um, small cut surgery, at least uh, 20 to 30% with the full extended and then what's left non-operative and
2: fused. I would say you know a majority of the ones we are fixing here are through an extended approach. The sinus approach we're using it's essentially an incision you make just above the critical angle, so you're, you're inferiorly taking the uh, perineals to see the anterior process. And the only ones I'm doing those for for tongue variants because you can you you don't need to see posteromedially. Uh, in other words, a segmental injury to the posterior facet you can't uh, you cannot see that through a sinus approach. So. I, but for tongue variants, you can see the entire fracture line in, uh, in evolution as you're reducing it. So we're, I use it for tongue variants. Uh, so I'm using uh, an extensile approach for most of the other ones. Unfortunately, for all of the uh, really smashed ones, uh, unfortunately, now we get transferred a lot of patients that have open fractures, and they will come in and somebody has debrided their bony injury from the medial side, and they come without their posterior facet and so they come with a big hole, uh, with a medial wound that somebody has uh, done something to. And essentially, obviously in that scenario, we have to do what uh, Rick's talking about. We have to do our primary fusion, but what we're always doing in that scenario is fixing the entire morphology of the heel uh, with a plate. And then we have a defect that is now where the push of set was, which we have to then uh, strut out to the right height with uh, positioning screws, and then using a bone graft to get them to incorporate and uh, unfortunately we get probably three or four a year like that now uh, but most of the ones that if they come to us from the very beginning uh, we're treating them in the fashion I just mentioned
3: you mentioned the perineal tendons um, can you describe your approach to sublux perineal tendons in the setting of calcaneus fracture and how you approach them and how you fix it
2: uh, well, you can see, actually, uh, there's two versions. Some of them, uh, more rare, have a ligamentous, um, uh, in other words, there's a perineal sheath disruption and non-nauseous injury to the fibula. You, if you look at a mortise x-ray on a, uh, the ones where you have to be cognizant of looking for that, is you'll see a little fleck on the distal posterolateral fibula, and that is the perineal sheath that literally has been uh, ripped because the perineals have dislocated in front of the fibula, in the process of this pronation injury that has occurred. And so um, if you reduce the fracture anatomically, you can imagine that you've now brought the ability for the peroneals to be back behind the fibula where they should be. But I learned by seeing this fracture line that some of those will sublux. You can actually push them back with your finger and they will they will go back in the groove but you've just done your extensile approach, and instead of making a separate incision to put a plate on that perineal sheath osseous injury, I I wrote a paper on this, but we just push the perineals back and then put a series of three rafter or four rafter wires that hold the perineals in the right position, uh, right next to the heel cord, and then at six weeks we pull them on and they've never re-dislocated. the, the more problematic one is when you come back late if you're going to do something late and nobody's looked at that and they are already in the front. That is nearly impossible to reduce if you see them at a year, year and a half later when they've. And uh, I talked to my mentor Ted Hansen about it. You know, he said, "Steve, if they've gone in the front and they've been there for 24 months or 36 months, you're not getting them back, and you're going to be doing a fusion anyway." So. Don't burden them with another problem that they have to contend with, just get them so they can have their foot on the ground and they're square and, and, uh, and realign them properly. But it's a good, I mean, it's very important that you recognize it. Um, uh, I always show the fellows and the residents when you're acutely exposing and, and uh, positioning the patient, you will feel or you can see subluxing tendons. You can actually feel them digitally reduce with your finger and then I always say, look, now watch this. And then when we finish the fracture, when you close the skin, you'll see that the perineals are almost invariably reduced. If they're not, that's the one when you would pin them.
0: All right, unless there's any other questions, I am gonna wrap it up uh, with some summary points as well as a survey.
2: We look
0: good at everyone in that room. You guys seen presenter mode or you guys seen the full screen?
2: Full screen. I see uh I see you, but I just see Calcandus Journal Club. <laughs> <There you go.
3: laughs>
0: Perfect. So these are the last couple of slides. And please uh stay to finish the polling questions at the end. So the Thank you for the moderators uh, as well as the guest faculty that joined uh, some of the take-home messages. Uh, again, the anterior process of the calcaneus is key to restoring calcaneus length foot shape during open reduction internal fixation. Uh, the Sanders classification is prognostic even after 10 years with type 3 fractures having a fourfold greater need for subtalar fusion than type 2 fractures. A small percentage of operatively treated intraartigo calcaneus fractures require late subtalar fusion and may benefit from primary fusion at the time of operative fixation. Uh, please keep in mind the dates for some of the upco- upcoming Journal Club sessions. Uh, the next one's gonna be on clavicle fractures on April 13th, followed by distal femur and distal humerus. So with that, Chris- Arun,
4: Arun can I make one point? Sure. One point. is. If you don't have expertise in these fractures, just like what Steve says, send them to somebody that does. This is one fracture, except if it's open, that can really wait until an expert looks at it. And those people who see a lot of these do a much better job. So please just send them in to us. Great point, Dr. Buckley. Uh,
0: If people can just finish and complete the evaluation.
2: I would sort of, I would uh, agree with Rick, and the other thing I would add on is that the, the probably the two fractures that demand utmost uh, attention to all the aspects that we've sort of talked about with calcaneus fractures is the calcaneus that's markedly displaced and a plafond injury. And plafond injuries carry, I think that's the most difficult fracture in orthopedics because of the uh, complexity of the soft tissue envelope. In addition, calcaneus fractures are tough, obviously, but I think the plafond injury, unfortunately, is a really problematic area because there's so many more of them now, uh, and they really do demand, um, and they're, 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 we're just seeing the late sequelae, and, you know, if all the other things that you do in response to when they don't go well are not good options, so that's, I would add that on as well.
0: Great, and the, the last slide, uh, just keep in mind a link to the uh, to the recording will be sent out Um, through Zoom uh, 24 hours after the conclusion of the session, and please subscribe to the AO Trauma North America YouTube channel where you can view this and other uh, videos. Uh, Thanks again to all the moderators as well as the faculty for joining us.